I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Welcome to Science in Africa a Nature Careers podcast series. I am Akinjimo, Chief Editor of Nature Africa. I work and live in Lagos, and I'm passionate about promoting science and public health journalism in my native Nigeria and across Africa. In this series, we explore the practice of science in this wonderful continent, the progress, the issues, the needs, and in the worlds of the African scientists who are based here. In this third episode, we explore decolonizing science in Africa. We start in South Africa, a country where you could say colonizing powers held on longest. And we center the discussion around a significant event when the statue of C.C. Rose was removed from the University of Cape Town. My name is Babola Abochauke, and I am a training and outreach coordinator for bioinformatics um, for HB Bionet at the University of Cape Town. I'm also um, a PhD student in the Environmental Geographical Sciences Department um, at the same university. Um, so I'm, I'm South African, born and bred in Pretoria. However, I decided, let me go to the coastline to study. It's the best institution in South Africa, but also in Africa, um, and it's part of the top 200 in the world. And I was like, I'm very passionate about science. I'm passionate about learning and becoming something in the world because I wanted to become a scientist. Let me go to UCT because this is where my mind is going to be shaped. And walking into UCT in 2010 for me was a shock because I am black and I'm South African where the population of this country, I'm the majority in terms of numbers. But I was in a campus where I wasn't seeing myself either in my class. I was one of few black people the people that were teaching me were not black people that were sort of uh, the only black people were cleaners and um and like sort of supporting staff but academics were mainly white mainly white men even not just white but white straight men and even though i didn't have the language to describe what i said because i was like 18 19 i was like this is weird and this is not okay that in a country that in a university that claims to be in africa there's no representation of black people Sort of, I wasn't represented. I, I felt like an imposter. Like, what am I doing here? Am I good enough to be here? Are they doing me a favor? What's what's happening? Why am I here? Because I'm not seeing people who look like me or speak like me um, who are in this institution. There was this thing that happened in 2015 um, 
it has to do with uh, taking down of a statue. And uh, which statue was that? It was the statue of Cecil John Rhodes um, at the University of Cape Town um, that was taken down around the 9th of April 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Um, after like a, a month or so of protests by students at the University of Cape Town. But you know, the, the, the statue is like a part of history, so to say. Why was it taken down? Whew, I mean, obviously, there's, there's been a lot written about this. There's academic journals and newspaper articles written about this, um, sort of explaining why the statue was removed. There was a lot of debate ab about it as well, because um, it cost money to remove it. Um, but also people were saying, what's the point of trying to erase history? And that is not what we were trying to do. The protesters were not trying to sort of erase history. Actually, they were trying to underline it and sort of highlight the, the pain and the suffering that that history has caused in the present as well. So when, when it was taken down, you, you were there, you know. Yes. And, um, can, you, can you go back and, you know, what were the things that happened, you know, while watching? You know, can you, can you take me there? Ooh, it was a sunny day in Cape Town. And it started with, because we had um, colonized, I'll use that word, we had colonized the administrative building for the Vice Chancellor, the former Vice Chancellor Max Price of the University of Cape Town. So we walked from middle campus to upper campus. So University of Cape Town is on a mountain. So when you're, when you're at middle campus, you are at the bottom. So essentially you have to walk up as though you're walking upstairs. And you are doing that because UCT is on a mountain. Um, as protesters, like hundreds of us had placards and, and wearing t-shirts saying Rose must fall and we were singing and chanting. So South Africa has a history of singing and protesting and dancing. So it's as though, if you don't know, if you think we're enjoying ourselves and we're happy, but we're actually angry, but we're singing and we, we're smiling. And that's how we express sort of our pain as well through singing and dancing. Obviously, we knew on the day that the stage was going to be removed, so we went there. There was a bit of prayer, there were speeches. So I actually want to also highlight that protesters were not just mindless people protesting and burning things. We were doing readings. We had workshops. We had lectures. We actually invited lecturers and, and, and speakers, and we were debating, and we were thinking. So it wasn't just, Rosemont's Fall was not just, oh my God, the statue must fall. We, there were theory and praxis behind why was my statue fall. So the little soldiers, which were students, were informed about why this must happen. It wasn't just an emotional, oh my God, the statue must go. We read books. I write what I like by Steve Biko, books by Toni Morrison and Audre Lorde and Malcolm X and Achille Mbembe and we were philosophical, we were sociological, we were, we were thinkers. So people must know that Rosemars Fall was a thinking movement. Anyway, so as thinkers, we had a moment where we were speaking and we prayed, then we protested up to where the statue was. Um, and obviously the crane came um, and it was, I mean, you should Google the pictures. It's very... It was, oof. There was so, so many people, there like thousands. I think actually other people joined from, it's not just University of Cape Town. I think other people joined from different parts of Cape Town just to see, because no one expected. And it was black people, colored people, white people. There was just different ages, children, old people, activists who fought apartheid, people that were just born the other day were there. And I think for me, everybody was just like singing and chanting and celebrating. And it was, a, it was, very it felt like ancestors were there it felt as though 
the slaves that built the University of Cape Town and who are buried there and no one wants to talk about it, were saying, we are fighting back. That this is obviously a small win, but it's something. It, it's showing that with unity, you can actually sort of address the issues that killed us, the issues that keep us suppressed and buried without anyone knowing. So it was like, it was a cathartic moment. I mean, I personally cried, and I, I don't cry a lot. I mean, I get cut by knives and I don't cry, but that girl was like, oh my God, this is, it was like a release. It was like a cascading moment, like, like a waterfall. Emotion took over. Emotions took over and it wasn't just me, men and women we were all crying and chanting and singing and celebrating. And I'm, I'm sad to know and note that that moment lasted for like a week. And after that, things were sort of swept under the carpet. People were being recruited, silenced, and, and it's sad to watch. But I think that for me showed what's possible and it was like a breakthrough of sorts. is uh, Shannon Marrera. Um, I'm an anthropologist um, at the University of Cape Town. I was born in Zimbabwe um, and I now work in, in South Africa. Um, and I teach on an extended degree social science uh, program as well as teaching in undergraduate anthropology um, and postgraduate anthropology. And my research is really concerned with the with knowledge systems, the production of knowledge systems, how we make knowledge, how we value knowledge, um, and the ways in which um, in which colonialism has has impacted on that historically. You know, for for people who don't know, uh, who was Cesar Rhodes, and why was his statue taken down in 2015? So Cecil Rhodes. Um, was born and raised in, in England and came to Southern Africa in the 1870s um, as, as a young man, as a teenager. He was a very successful businessman, uh, primarily through, through mining. But what Rhodes did um, that's had such a lasting impact on Southern Africa was that he combined his economic interests um, in the colony with political interests. So he was a very strong imperialist. He had a huge, strong belief in expanding um, and consolidating the British Empire. And the company that, that he founded and ran, the British South Africa Company, which had a royal charter um, from England, was really integral in, in combining economic and political colonialism across much of, of Southern Africa. Uh, Rhodes became prime minister of the Cape Colony in the 1890s. And, and while he was prime minister, he really took very strong steps to, to turn black Africans into members of a labor pool who were essentially dependent on colonial industrial capital in order, in order to survive. Um, so, so moving people from one way of life into, into another. Yeah, so it, it, was, it was powerful. He was very powerful and he's remembered now as, as, as a man who sort of defines a moment in which um, a huge amount of dispossession occurred. So from that height to the statue being taken down, what were the events leading to this? You know, because it's, I mean, it's like someone held in IS team and then this happened. So the... The statue that was taken down um, is kind of in a, in a very central position at the University of Cape Town. And the reason why it's there is that the land that the University of Cape Town is situated on was, was donated by Rhodes Estate. Um, so it was uh, after Rhodes' death, it became the university. 
The statue has actually been contentious for a, a pretty long time. So as long ago as the 1950s, there were um, Af- Afrikaans nationalists protested against the statue because it was a statue of, of a British um, imperialist through into the present, um, into the post-colonial moment, where for a number of years prior to 2015, there had been sort of recurrent moments of, of student protest against the presence of the statue on the, on the campus. And really what those protests are about are about institutional culture at, at UCT, but also the wider sort of societal uh, culture within South Africa as a whole. And it was really just questioning why in the present moment or in 2015, as it was, why would we still have a statue, a memorial, a form of celebration of someone that had, through his power, kind of brought about significant harmful change to to large numbers of, of indigenous South Africans. So, yeah, so the protest movement, which started at UCT, then went national, then went international, began with this this moment of of a statue, of a a particular statue, of a particular man, who obviously was standing as as a symbol for a lot of of wider issues. You you entered on uh, something that has to do with emotions and stuff like that. Uh, What changed, you know, on that day, physically and emotionally? So the the fall of Rhodes, the, the bringing down of the statue was really just the start of a number of quite difficult and transformative years at the university. So protests continued and, and deepened. One very strong arm of the protest that you've just touched upon was this recognition of, of the role of emotion um, in teaching and learning, and the role of emotion, um, particularly in a post-colonial setting, in dealing with a lot of um, of the subjects that that the disciplines cover. So yeah, so there was a long period of engagement uh, where protests continued, protests deepened, um, engaging with lots of issues also that were faced by post-apartheid South Africa. So not just by the university itself. So thinking about cultural knowledge of of, of what constitutes. Yeah, what constitutes knowledge, what constitutes education, um, what, what should art look like in the post-colony. At the same time, with a whole lot of economic concerns, um, at a moment of economic decline globally and in South Africa. So a lot of concerns from students about what is a university education actually for? What is this going to do for our country or for ourselves um, at the end of the day? And also a series of political concerns about um, the failures of, of sort of post-apartheid ANC policies around non-racialism. So, yeah, so, so a lot changed um, quite slowly in, in some ways, um, very slowly from the perspective of the life cycle of a student, I think, quite quickly from the perspective of the life cycle of, of an institution. So changes in leadership, changes in building names, um, shifts with regard to sort of cultures of teaching and learning, what we expect from students, what we expect from, from staff. Um, and again, this, yeah, this strong recognition that, that a university doesn't just need to be a place of rationality, but that we also need to accept a lot of the positionalities and reflexivities and, and emotions that, that exist within that space. To many black South Africans, the removal of the statue was hugely symbolic. It represented another step toward decolonizing or taking back some ownership, black African ownership of that university. In other African countries, this process of decolonization of academia 
happened decades ago. It is painful to hear how the colonial legacy is so persistent. So, so to the core of, uh, from what I understand, the core of uh, the movement, you know, uh, event leading to bringing down the statue has to do with uh, some form of discrimination, uh, issues of uh, carryover from appetite, and so on and so forth. Um, is the situation in terms of discrimination and some of the things alluded to then, uh, is it changing now? And if it's changing, how much has changed? So to some extent, I'm, I'm really not sure that as a white academic, I'm the right person to answer that question. So, yeah. I mean, I, I have a permanent post at the university. I, I'm at associate professor level. I'm a white settler within South Africa. To me, it looks like there have been some positive changes, but that they're quite slow. So there have been changes in leadership. There have been changes in, in policies and structures there have been changes in, yeah, just in the ways in which colleagues relate to one another, etc. But to me, it also it does look like there's still a long way to go. Um, also, just because of the nature of South African society as a whole, so who it is that um, reaches the level of university education, uh, those those sorts of things. But I also sort of have to recognise that even in that, I'm I'm speaking from a position of privilege, and there's probably a lot that I don't necessarily see that happens within the university space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if I may add, from your from your vantage point as a white staff uh, member, teaching predominantly black students, what are the challenges you face, or you've you you've, you've come across? So the challenges are are mostly good challenges, productive challenges. So there was a, a point in time during the protest years in particular when when really when my identity, my personal and political identity as, as a white academic in the country, in the university, was very deeply challenged. But I think it was challenged in, in very productive ways. So some of those challenges were to do with institutional concerns, so sort of being a white academic on a program that's only open to black students, for instance, uh, which is really intended within the university structures and the national government funding structures. It's intended as positive discrimination, but in a post-apartheid context with all of the sort of power discrepancies that have been inherited, it's not experienced as, as uh, positive discrimination by students. So, yeah, so there have been some really important challenges, I think, um, to to thinking very broadly about, about positionality as a white academic uh, within a university and as a white settler within a post-colonial society. So thinking about the university in terms of course content, pedagogy, what languages we teach in, etc., but also thinking about all of this hidden social capital that's carried um, by whiteness in South Africa um, and by, by different forms of privilege. And so I think one of the biggest challenges um, that has been in this in this place and in this space is that the yeah, that within contemporary South Africa, that the positioning and privilege that comes often with whiteness um, or with particular class positions isn't surfaced and isn't recognized. And what Rhodes Must Fall did was to very clearly surface 
all of the sort of fractures that were in place within society. Um, and I think that's been enormously valuable uh, within the university as a whole in getting white academics to recognize the ways in which racialization works within South Africa um, and how, how it still privileges some of us and actively disadvantages others. And I think once you have that realization within the university, within society more broadly, the biggest challenge is to sort of sit down and ask yourself what your role is in, in this space. So when do you be an active citizen and when do you just sit down and, and keep quiet? So I think that's that's the ongoing challenge, maintaining a reflexive awareness of of when you work with the structures and when you just uh, step out of them. Yeah. So what does the future hold at the University of Cape Town? I think the, the future... Ugh, the future feels quite positive to me. I, I think in terms of research work, there's so much interesting stuff happening. In terms of teaching changes, there's really exciting stuff happening. So, for example, I, um, I have white colleagues who are working within affinity groups on a really regular basis to recognize their racial biases, which is something that I can't imagine happening at UCT a decade ago, widely anyway. Um, and I'm involved in research projects that are sort of interested in extending concepts and categories of analysis from the global south, rather than using concepts and categories from from elsewhere. We're seeing more and more excellent postgraduate students graduating, making their mark on the academy from a sort of uh, African South African perspective. So there is there is yeah there are lots of lots of positives to the future, and I think positives that will. Yeah, bring about different different kinds of change. But the work is, of course, always, always ongoing. And not everybody sees the future as bright. So I, I do have colleagues who see the changes that are happening at UCT as, as too fast, as sort of dangerously radical. But the majority actually see it as too slow um, and as sort of bogged down in the inertia of, of institutions. So I have a colleague, a fabulous colleague um, in the Department of Social Anthropology, Francis Nyamjo, whose phrase um, that he uses is that we are we are nibbling at the resilient colonialism in our institutions. And I think that, yeah, that can only be a good thing. You know, the, the title of this podcast is Decolonizing African Science. What does that mean to you? I suppose what it would mean to me is that in Africa, we have inherited a particular formal knowledge production system, so which we see in universities, but also in civil society, in business, etc. But Africa also has very rich informal knowledge making spaces. So things that sometimes get called indigenous knowledge systems, um, for, for instance. Um, and these are still here, um, still exist very much within contemporary modernity. Um, they're fluid, they're iterative, they're responsive as any form of knowledge making is um, and, and will be. So I think if we think about decolonization in African science, it's not saying throw out the contemporary knowledge systems we have, but it's saying build them up, diversify them so that other knowledge systems can be brought in as well. The title of this podcast is Decolonizing Africa. What does that mean to you, Pabalo? Um, that means a lot of things. So firstly, I want to start by saying that I am worried that we throw away or throw around the word decolonization. It's become meaningless in my view. It's become bastardized. It's become a buzzword. It's become something that people just throw around to get cookie points 
as being transformed or open-minded. Um, and I think true decolonization, either of African science or of Africa in general, is not going to be the way people have presented it over the past years, particularly after roads must fall and fees must fall, the word and the, the theory has come back to life. Um, but I'm, 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 I'm worried that people think it's all going to be strawberries and cream. It's going to be peaceful. It's going to be nice. And people want to feel good. People want to be comfortable. And I think decolonizing African science means losing some academic giants that we've, we are praising currently globally. It means questioning their science. It means admitting that science is not objective. It means we have to tackle the history and the politics behind science. That we usually use scientists, trust the science. Science is better than religion. Science is pure. Science is good knowledge. But if you really go back, who finds science? Who were the scientists in the past? Who came up with eugenics? Who literally, science has been used to kill and destroy the world. And I think until we get to a point of admitting that, we'll never decolonize science, either globally or in Africa um, as well. Are there examples you can draw from other African uh, countries? You know, like what drives you, you know, as a South African? Is this something that is um, uh, more or less local or is something that is African-wide, you know? Because an average Nigerian, if we're in a room, for example, uh, people know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The way we carry ourselves and so on and so forth. So what, what drives you? Well, what I mean, I'm driven by a lot of things. But I, as, as I said from the beginning, I think my passion for Africa, I mean, I when I say that I've traveled to multiple African countries and I have friends from all over and I read works from all over Africa particularly because I think we've been silenced for too long. We've been divided for too long. I think one of the issues as well that we face in South Africa, for instance, is how sort of due to apartheid and colonialism, uh, people tend to be very xenophobic. And I think a lot of that comes from ignorance. So for me, it's like in small ways, trying to show sort of how important it is to be united as Africans, not just as South Africans. Because I think uh, yeah, the other issue is some people think we are exceptional as a country. And I'm like, eh, maybe if you traveled a bit more, you'd realize that there's more to this continent than being in South Africa. There's, but I think then it's, how do I make sure that as, as an aspiring academic, as a budding academic, I collaborate more with other academics from Africa because I think our goals are made to want to collaborate with people from Europe and from America because that's the standard. But how do I make sure that I collaborate with Akin from Nigeria or, you know what I mean, Tinashe from Zimbabwe to write a paper on something and publish it in nature or publish it in, in science direct just to make sure that we, we, we change the African narrative. We improve the African education system because I'm passionate about many things but i think education for me will be a solution to many of our problems and i think most of our people are ignorant and it's not education for me is not even just about going to university of ibidan or university of cape town there's local knowledge systems there's different ways of learning and of teaching that don't include formal ways or westernized ways of sort of doing um and i think i'm very passionate about sort of just in my small ways in my little ways collaborating with other africans and improving the continent for the better Well, as South Africa continues to nibble away at the resilient colonialism, I think the lesson for African countries to continue the process of decolonization is to collaborate and create partnerships within the continent, rather than instinctively reaching for the old 
colonial powers. Now, that is all for this episode of Science in Africa podcast. I am Akinjima, Chief Editor of Nature Africa. Thanks again to Pabalo Choke and Shannon Moreira. And thank you for listening. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.